This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us at this week's episode, which is episode 196, entitled Reflections and Opening Statements from the Recent Old Testament Debate. Yes, if you've been following the podcast recently, you know that I have participated in a live debate on whether or not the Old Testament teaches Unitarianism, namely the doctrine that God is one person, the Father alone. I, of course, took the affirmative position, and in this episode and in the following episodes, we will be looking at the various parts of the debate, and I'll be offering my reflections, talking about my preparation, my strategy, and some reactions to what I encountered in the debate, so you can get a little sense as to what I was thinking, and you don't have to listen to the entire debate, which is two hours long, all in one sitting. You can listen to it in little chunks each and every week. So this week we'll be looking at the opening statements. Since I took the affirmative position, I actually was able to go first in the debate. My debate partner, my interlocutor, his name is Kelly Powers, and he has a YouTube page called The Berean Perspective. Of course, you can go look it up and see what he is like. He comes from the perspective of believing in the doctrine of the Trinity, and he thinks that the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the doctrine that God is three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Bible can't both teach Unitarianism, that God is one person, and also teach Trinitarianism, that God is three persons. One does not equal three. So in my preparation for the debate, I knew that I was going to get to give the first opening statement. So it gave me a chance to get out in the front and to make some very important statements about what the Old Testament has to say. And I also wanted to be able to set the stage on where I stood on some pretty important topics, not knowing how my debate partner was going to react to these things, I just wanted to set the tone about the seriousness of the claims that I'm going to make. So I wanted to make four particular points in my opening statement, and I wanted to establish them as thoroughly as I could within a 10-minute period. The first thing I wanted to point out is that God reveals himself with over 20,000 singular references, and that includes singular pronouns, singular verbs, singular adjectives, and singular pronominal suffices. This includes the references in the Hebrew sections of the Old Testament and in the Aramaic sections as well. Of course, since we are talking about the Old Testament, there is a Greek version of the Old Testament. If I wanted to include all the singular references in the Greek version, we would be at well over 30,000 references. I think other than the fact that there is a God taught in Scripture, the fact that God reveals himself as a single person is probably the most attested fact of the Old Testament. 
it is so prominent. I also indicated a variety of passages that would indicate God speaking as a single self, as one person, using first-person pronouns like I, me, and my. Included in those passages were exclusive statements where the writer would say that Yahweh is he and there is no one, or I am Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I created them by myself all alone. So it would indicate that God is one person, that there's no one beside him. Of course, we also have Malachi 2.10, which defines the one God as simply the Father alone. Now, I knew my debate partner, Kelly Powers, was someone who was going to make a big stink over the fact that God is described with the cardinal number Echad, which is the number one. If you were counting to three, you would say Echad, Shanaim, Shalosh. You would just count to three. And this is the number that's used in the Shema. Here is where the Lord our God, the Lord is one of Deuteronomy 6.4. And so I wanted to get out in the open and say, look, this is a passage that describes God's oneness and it describes God with the cardinal number one. And I wanted to put that out there. So that was going to be one of my main talking points because I do think that the amount of evidence over 20,000 times that God reveals himself as a single person is just so abundant. I can't think of too many other facts in the entire Bible that are more well attested than this particular fact. The second point that I was trying to make was a perspective from outsiders looking into the Old Testament. And so I talked about the external testimony from these ancient witnesses like Josephus and Philo, who were Jews, that commented on the God taught in the Old Testament, but also some Gentiles that were commenting on the God worshipped by the Jews, namely the account from the letter of Aristius and Tacitus, the Latin historian. All four of those, in their own words, indicated that God is one person. The God that is described in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, is one God, but also that that one God is a single person, describing that God with singular pronouns. So my first point would be looking at the evidence within the Old Testament. The second point would be looking at what outsiders that were talking about the Old Testament were saying. So my third point that I really wanted to establish is from the get-go I wanted to say that any sort of suggestion about talking about the Trinity is anachronistic. It is wrong. You can't read it into the Bible. That would be considered eisegesis. I wanted to say that the doctrine of the Trinity was developed in the 4th and 5th centuries AD. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years after the Old Testament was written. And so to read those ideas back into the Old Testament would be historically anachronistic. I wanted to get out and to make that point from the front because that is actually acknowledged by the majority of historians. Even Christian historians will admit that the Trinity was developed over time. So I don't think that the various writers of the Old Testament were Trinitarians. And no serious scholar of the Old Testament thinks that as well. So I definitely wanted to get that out there because I didn't know how my debate partner would respond to that, but I think it put him on the defensive in a way. Uh, the interesting thing is that he just dismissed it. He just kind of said, that's hogwash. 
that's ridiculous. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting to see how he went about talking about those sort of things. The last point, my fourth point that I was making, regarded the fact that the Messiah, the Son of God, was a promised figure throughout the Old Testament, that he was supposed to descend from the biological lines of Abraham, Judah, and David. The New Testament opens by saying this very point, that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And in that particular genealogy of Matthew 1, Jesus is also traced through the line of Judah. So Jesus being the son of Abraham means that he descended from Abraham. And as a son, Jesus, by definition, came after that particular ancestor, meaning Abraham came first and Jesus came second. Same thing with being the son of Judah. Judah came first and Jesus came after that, also being the son of David. David would come first and Jesus would come after that. So if Jesus is a descendant of all these persons, then we know that he is a human being, a genuine human being, meaning he's not God. He's not divine in the same sense that the Father is divine. We know that he's distinct from God in a very important way. And we know that he wasn't around anywhere in the Old Testament as a conscious, living, breathing, thinking person. Because he's not born yet. He's not born until the opening chapters of the New Testament. And so this would allow me to get ahead of any sort of arguments that there's this supposed pre-existing son that's just floating around somewhere in the Old Testament, maybe as the angel of the Lord or as God's wisdom, that sort of thing. So I'm going to transition now and let you listen to the opening statements. I have it set out to where you'll hear my opening statement, which is 10 minutes long, and then immediately afterwards you will hear the opening statement from Kelly Powers. Unfortunately, in my opening statement, as I was also projecting a PowerPoint for the live audience to see, that my audio seemed to cut out on a couple of places. So I apologize about that. There's nothing that I can do to fix it. And I think it was because I was both streaming this PowerPoint as well as using the audio portion. And after I stopped using the PowerPoint after my opening statement, my voice became much clearer throughout the rest of the presentation. So I apologize about that. You'll hear it, but I think the argument that I'm making will be pretty clear for you to understand. So without further ado, here are the opening statements, and I appreciate you so much for listening to this debate. All right, so I'm a truth seeker, so I really want to follow the data and the evidence wherever they point. And I do want to say at the start that I am, in humility, open to changing my mind on this particular issue if Mr. Powers provides compelling evidence. I openly admit that I could be wrong. I could be mistaken. So I will be sure to listen very carefully to what Mr. Powers has to share. But for now, I want to offer four reasons why I am currently convinced that the Old Testament teaches unitarianism. So my first point is that the monotheism expressed in the Old Testament defines God as one person, the Father alone. And there are literally thousands of singular references describing the Israelite God based on the Hebrew and the Aramaic within the Old Testament. And these singular references include singular pronouns, singular verbs, singular adjectives, and singular pronominal suffices. 
Now, how many singular references are there? Answer, there are over 20,000 singular references describing the only true God in the Old Testament, over 20,000. So to put this number in perspective, God is described as a single person in as many occurrences as there are verses in the entire Old Testament. That's a lot. In addition to more than 20,000 singular references describing the Israelite God, the Old Testament makes some pretty clear and explicit statements worth considering. So Deuteronomy 4.35 says that Yahweh, he is God. There is no other besides him. A few verses later, in 4.39, the reader is commanded to know therefore today and take it to your heart that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Of course, the famous Shema, the creed of Israel, says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Using the number Echad, that's Deuteronomy 6 4. Powerful passage that I think worth discussing is Isaiah 44 24. I want you to listen to all of the singular references in this passage. Thus says Yahweh, the one who redeemed you and the one who formed you from the womb, I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Isaiah 44, 24. I want you to note the parallelism in this particular passage. We have stretching out the heavens by myself paralleled with spreading out the earth all alone. By myself is paralleled with the phrase all alone. And Malachi 2.10, which says, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? And again, you could note the parallelism. The one Father just is the one God who created us. Furthermore, there are many titles regularly attributed to God that explicitly indicate that he is a single person. So we have God being described as the Holy One, the Mighty One, the Righteous One, the Upright One, and the Almighty One. So let's move on to my second point, having rounded off my first one. Point number two is that ancient testimony described the Old Testament's God in terms of unitary monotheism, while never suggesting that the Jewish God consisted of three distinct persons. And so we can look at people like Josephus. He is the first century Jewish historian, whose writings, by the way, were preserved by Christians, not by Jews. And Josephus says that God is one person. Philo, who is the first century Hellenized Jewish philosopher, portrayed the God found in the Old Testament as, quote, the father of all who is one person, the creator of the universe, end quote. The non-Jewish document known as the Letter of Aristius, which is where we get our first external testimony about the development of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, depicted the Jewish God by saying that, quote, there is only one God and his might extends through all things. Every place is filled with his power. The Latin historian Tacitus contrasted Jewish monotheism from the Egyptian practice of worshiping many objects by saying that, quote, the Jews conceive of one God only, 
who, by the way, is a supreme and eternal being, end quote, but Tacitus never describes the Jewish God as a plurality of persons. Furthermore, the Encyclopedia Judaica on the entry entitled God characterizes the Old Testament's monotheism by saying that, quote, God is one, there is no other. That's my second. Number three is that the Trinity is a doctrine that slowly developed over time during the centuries that followed the early Christian movement. So it is historically anachronistic to read fourth and fifth century AD ideas of a triune God back into the Old Testament. Now, this is a basic fact of history that is openly admitted by even Christian historians. The Oxford book on the Trinity states that, quote, the idea of a Trinity in the Old Testament will strike most in the present period as anachronistic and an inaccurate handling of the Old Testament's literal sense and historical integrity. Now, the entry on monotheism in the Encyclopedia Judaica states that, quote, the arithmetical unity of God arises mainly as a reaction against pluralistic formulations found in other religions. And it goes on to describe some of those, including Trinitarianism. So the entry on monotheism contrasts the Jewish arithmetical unity of God with Trinitarianism, because they are not one and the same. Now, even Gregory of Nyssa, who is the fourth century bishop, who personally contributed to the wording of the Nicene Creed, openly admitted that the Trinity represents, quote, the middle between the two opinions, between Jewish monotheism on one side and polytheism on the other. So one of the writers of the Nicene Creed admitted that the Trinity was not Jewish monotheism. So that's my third point. My fourth point is that according to the Old Testament, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, was a promised human being to be born in the future, descending from the biological lines of Abraham, Judah, and David. And the Old Testament teaches this pretty clearly that the promised Messiah is to be the son of Abraham. You can see that in Genesis chapter 12 and other places. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the descent of Judah in Genesis 49. And he is the son of David in passages like 2 Samuel 7. And Justin Martyr, who is the second century Greek Platonic philosopher turned Christian, records the belief that, quote, we all expect that Christ will be a man born of men in his dialogue with Trypho. Now, I also want to make the case just from the get-go that there is no pre-existing son in the Old Testament. It's just, it's just not there. I'm just going to come out and say that right at the beginning. But we also need to talk about defining son because it really should go without saying that the definition of son indicates one who is younger than his ancestors. So if Jesus is the son of David, then David came first and Jesus was after that, not the other way around. So those are my four pieces of evidence um, that God is described with a single person over 20,000 times, ancient testimony uh, describes God as a single person, 
The doctrine of the triune God was developed hundreds of years after the New Testament, and it's historically anachronistic if we read that back into the Old Testament. And the Jewish Messiah was to be a human being descending from the biological lines of Abraham, Judah, and David. So this evidence currently persuades me that, yes, the Old Testament overwhelmingly teaches Unitarianism, and I sincerely look forward to the evidence that Mr. Powers is going to present. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mr. Dr. Dustin Smith. Appreciate your candor and your sharing. Uh, I'm just trying to look at my clock, so I also know what's going on here as well. Um, so obviously, I'm not going to get into any kind of rebuttals just yet, but uh, there was definitely a lot of question marks of what was just shared, but I'll leave it at that for later. Uh, so this has been um, uh, an interesting time for me, and normally I would have things planned, and so I'm just going to be going with some thoughts that I've been able to put together recently. So a few things that come across to my mind perspective is, does the Old Testament exclusively teach Unitarianism? Now, Unitarianism, from my understanding, you can look up different things online, different theologies, different people definitions, essentially means God is one person each. Therefore, the Trinity or the Triunity or three persons, all wrong, according to what's called Unitarianism. You could be a Oneness Pentecostal, you could be a Jehovah's Witness, you could be what's called a Biblical Unitarian. Um, essentially what all those take that believe is, is that there's only one personage who is essentially God. Now, as was stated just a second ago, 20,000 something pronouns and verbs and whatever else, um, just to make a quick note here, do you need how many, how many times do we need to say Jesus was resurrected in the New Testament for it to be true? Once? Twice? Do we need 20,000 times to read it in the New Testament for it to be true? Or is a few times, or maybe more than a few times, sufficient for that truth? The reason why I say that is, yes, there are plenty of Old Testament references to God being declared in the singular sense as God being declared. But I ask this, and I'll ask it up front. I'll give them plenty of time to think about this, because to my, to my knowledge, I don't know of this verse. Yes, there are people who say God is one personage. But yet, when you look at the Bible, Genesis, now we're only in the Old Testament right now, so we're kind of a little bit limited, even though we opened up the door for the pre-existence of Jesus. Thank you, by the way, Dustin. Thank you for opening that door for conversation later. But we're only in the Old Testament, supposedly. Where is there one verse? I don't need 20,000. I don't need 100. I don't need 10. Where's one verse where it says God is one person? If you try to use Deuteronomy 6.4, that will fail. That will fail. But I do want to share a couple points here. God is revealed both in the singular and the plural. Plenty of examples. Genesis 1.1, going off my notes that I have online right now. I'm not sharing anything. I'm just looking at my own notes personally. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. But yet we also see a few verses later, and God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Pronouns in the plural. God went from singular to plural, though. And man was created in the image of God. In fact, if you were to open your Bibles, and in Genesis chapter 5, 
wasting time here. Apparently, I should have had this open. Genesis chapter 5 says this, verse 1 and verse 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. Now, notice here, if you were to look in the words, Adam there is the, the Hebrew word Adam, which is shouted in English, Adam. And you would look up a few, few words later when God created man. They're both the same Hebrew word. Interesting. He created him in the likeness of God. Notice mankind is not created in the image of cows or dogs or cats or angels, but created in the image of God. Are we created in the image of God? The answer is yes. So in Genesis 1, when God says, let us make man in our image, we can rule out. He wasn't talking to fish or birds or mysterious things flying around. Wasn't talking to angels. He's talking to God. Now, how does that work? Well, we keep on reading in other places. Genesis 19:24 says that the Lord rained fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven, which is confirmed not to be eisegesis, but to be exegetical. If you were to go to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 17 through 19, Jeremiah 50, verse 40, and the book of Amos chapter 4, verse 10, all three of those accounts demonstrate that there was two involved in Genesis chapter 19, 24. Now, I'm jumping the gun, but let me keep going here. Now, the word Adam, if you were just to look at, just to look at, and if you're taking notes, Dustin, I hope you are. If you were to look at the book of Numbers, Numbers 31, verse 28, 30, 35, and 40, the same Hebrew word for Adam or man is used there. Now, in each of those places, it talks about in the plural for man. It says persons or human beings. That word is used in the plural, but it's also used in the singular. Now, if we were to look at the word echad, which is essentially Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, that's almost always cited to prove God is one person, but it doesn't say that. If we were to look at Genesis 1.5, talks about night and morning being one day. Genesis 2.24, one flesh. Genesis 11.6, one people as a whole. Genesis 27.44 talks about that being a reference to a few days. Same thing in Genesis 29.20. Same thing in Genesis 34.16. talks about one people collectively. The same Hebrew word, echad, also used in Nehemiah 7.66. These are all my own notes. I didn't do any cheating. I did my own old school homework. Nehemiah 7.66 talks about a congregation being together. A congregation being together. Ezra 2.64 talks about a whole assembly. Same Hebrew word, echad. Esther 3.8 talks about a certain people. Again, showing a unity. And Isaiah 65, 15 talks about that the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Talking again about unity. That word together is the same Hebrew word, echad. Ezekiel 37, 17, to the Mormon surprise out there might be listening, who think that the stick is talking about the Book of Mormon, uh, wrong, uh, was talking about Ephraim and Judah, and the two sticks being two nations, that would come together. Yeah, Ezekiel 37, 17. It's actually talking about two nations coming together, but that's the same Hebrew word, echad. 
So how can that word ekad be used both in singular and in plural in so many cases? These are just some that I put down. But how many do we actually need to see that it can be used more than one? Remember in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. It doesn't say one personage. It just says God is one. Well, what does one mean? I affirm things like what he brought about Isaiah 44 and other places that I'll come back to in a little bit when I get a chance. I affirm that. But I also want to highlight a few places here that talk about how the Lord has been seen or been revealed in the Old Testament. You see, the Bible says in numerous places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that God can't be seen. Right? But yet we see in Genesis 17 or Genesis 16, 7 through 13, Hagar saw the angel of the Lord, who was actually identified by her as being God. Abraham, in Genesis 18, verses 1 through 14, is actually visibly talking to the Lord and sees him. Moses, according to Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, saw God and the people around him. Gideon saw the angel of the Lord in Judges chapter 6, verse 22 through 23. The reason why I bring these out is because there are plenty of examples in the Old Testament where somehow God has been revealed as a unity, as a unity. You look at places like Zechariah chapter 1, where it talks about the angel of the Lord who is there talking to Joshua, talking to Joshua. The angel of the Lord is actually identified as being called Yahweh, Lord. He prays to the Lord of hosts in the heavenly realm. He's praying to the Lord of hosts, and he's praying to him, and the Lord of hosts talks back to the angel Lord who is identified in Zechariah 1, Zechariah 2, and Zechariah 3 as actually being called Yahweh. So you at least got two. So as you look at these scriptures, as you look at the things that God's been revealed, Isaiah 48, verses 12 through 16, talks about the one who was speaking was Yahweh, the first and the last, who was then sent by the Lord God, and his spirit. So does the Old Testament exclusively teach Unitarianism? The answer is no, but both sides come together with balance, the singular and the unity together. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at the rebuttals to the opening statements, and I will get to offer my reflections and the way that I prepared ahead of time for my rebuttals. So please look forward to that next episode. That will be episode 197. I should also mention that if you want to listen to the debate in its entirety, you can check out the link in the episode's description to the YouTube video where you can watch all the debate in its great glory. So thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote these very powerful truths all over the Internet, specifically the truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you feel like you'd like to donate to the cause, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.